Welcome to the No-Till Farmer Podcast, brought to you today by Biotill Cover Crop Seed. I'm Julia Gerlach, Executive Editor. I encourage you to subscribe to this series, which is available in iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, and TuneIn Radio. Subscribing will allow you to receive an alert about new episodes when they're released. I'd like to take a moment to thank Biotill Cover Crop Seed for sponsoring today's episode. Biotill Cover Crops, a pioneer and leader in cover crop seed, represents a complete lineup of seeds suitable to a wide range of soil types and growing conditions. Biotill Cover Crop vendors are committed to your success and provide local resources, education, guidance, and tips and tricks to ensure your plantings have the correct foundations for success. The original producers of Bounty Annual Ryegrass, Biotill Cover Crops, continues to add new and improved cover crop and forage varieties, including Enricher Radish, Bayou Kale, Shield Broadleaf Mustard, African Forage Cabbage, and Mihi Persian Clover. With over 30 years of experience in production, processing, packaging, and shipping, you won't be able to find a better fit for your farm anywhere else. Learn more at biotill.com. That's B-I-O-T-I-L-L dot com. Micronutrients and humates are critical to soil fertility and plant nutrition, but their effects aren't widely understood. That's where independent soil health specialist Jim Horman comes in. Jim teaches farmers how proper nutrient balance in crops fights disease and insect infestation, and how humates in the soil can increase efficiency of applied nutrients. He studies a lot of new and often overlooked ideas, recommending little changes that together result in exponential improvements to plant health that can boost your bottom line. Jim is presenting a pre-conference workshop on July 27th ahead of the 2022 National Strip Tillage Conference. And for this episode of the No-Till Farmer podcast, brought to you by Biotill Cover Crop Seed, he's giving us a preview of that presentation. Listen in as Associate Editor Michaela Pockner chats with Jim about why micronutrients may be the best opportunity to boost your yields this year, what to look for when buying biologicals, and more. My name is Jim Horman, and I have my own company called Horman Soil Health Services. But first, um, I, I worked as county extension educator for uh, 24 years for Ohio State University. Worked mainly in no-till, cover crops, and uh, water quality. I left extension and uh, worked for uh, USDA NRCS as a soil health specialist, a regional soil health specialist. I did that for three years, and uh, in 2019, I started my own company, Horman Soil House Services. So I'm working on a number of grants, and I have some uh, clients that I I work with, uh, consult with, and also sell crimper rollers and, and do some things like that. Okay. What are the soils like in your area of Ohio, and can you describe what people are growing and the precipitation? So, in our area, we're pretty much heavy clay soils. That's that's predominant. We get about, we used to get about 36, now we're up to about 40 to 42 inches of rainfall per year, so it's a little higher rainfall. So you're joining us to kick off the National Strip Tillage Conference on Wednesday, July 27th with a pre-conference workshop presentation. It's called Boosting the Bottom Line with Mineral Nutrition and Humates. What will be the focus of this workshop? Well, let's start with the uh, mineral nutrition. So, you know, we've spent a lot of time talking about N, P, and K, nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium. And those are very important, but 
we don't spend a lot of time, especially in uh, uh, looking at the biology with maybe that other 1%, the micronutrients. And if you really want to boost your yields, maybe the best place right now, especially with high fertilizer costs, are to look at those micronutrients because most of the micronutrients are the central element for forming enzymes. And enzymes are what really increase biological activity in the plant, and that's going to boost your yield. So if you've got any one of these micronutrients that's lacking, kind of shuts the whole plant down and really can't go too far. I mean, you can do a few things, but if you really want to boost yields, you're, you're going to have to make sure you got enough micronutrients there. So I'm going to spend quite a bit of time talking about the micronutrients in the soil. So, Okay. What ways are you using to test the micronutrient levels? So, you know, usually when we, we start testing, we're looking at uh, soil test and uh, also tissue test. Uh, the problem with some of the soil tests are they can give you wrong answers. Uh, for example, if you're looking at like iron and manganese, they're going to measure total iron and total manganese. And really there's only a specific form of some of these elements that the plant can use. Even though it will absorb some of these other elements into the plant, you can have very high levels on your soil test or especially on soil tests, not so much tissue tests, but they're, but they're not really helping the plant. Um, they're just, they're taken up, but they're not utilized sometimes. So that's why it's important that uh, you understand what the limitations of each one of those tests are. Okay. And how do you tell if the soil test is giving you the wrong answer? And how do you go about identifying those limitations? Well, usually uh, what I do is is I look for plant deficiencies. So uh, you can go out. Uh, corn is very easy. Corn and sorghum, you can look for a lot of deficiencies uh, on the plant. So, for example, let's let's talk about calcium and boron. Boron is used to get calcium into the plant, so you really got to have both. But you look for the zipper effect on a leaf. So, if you look on the edge of a leaf and you see these little dashed lines, some people call them railroad tracks, some of them call them little zippers. That's an indication of boron deficiency. If you see some of the dashed lines or the zipper effect uh, in between the, the edge of the leaf and the, the midrib, then that's an indication of calcium deficiency. And calcium is just so critical. We, we have 146 enzymes that calcium activates. So it's really important that you have enough calcium uh, in the plant. Now, if you also look at the leaf and you see some white, especially on the midrib or white streaks, that's an indication of zinc deficiency. If you look towards the tip and you see that it's kind of yellow, with, with all the Roundup that we're using, we're seeing an awful lot of manganese uh, deficiency because Roundup is really good at tying up manganese and iron and uh, copper and a lot of our other nutrients. The other thing you can look for is if, if you look at your corn plant and you've got a tremendous amount of brace roots, that's generally an indication of copper deficiency. Now, there's a caveat to this. Uh, certain 
corn varieties have more brace roots than others. I don't know if that's directly related to copper deficiency. Don't get too excited if you just see one set, but where, where you really want to be concerned is if you've got a thin stalk and you see several sets, several internodes, and you've got brace roots there, what's happening is those brace roots are kind of like making, trying to make an end run, almost like a heart bypass. If you take that stalk and you split it, you'll see a lot of brown discolored areas. And what copper is so important for is lignin form formation. So uh, a lot of our stalk rots and our, our lodging comes from a lack of copper in the soil. Only about 5% of the copper that's in the soil is available. And a lot of times it's tied up in the residue and it can take two to five years for that to break down. You don't need a lot of copper. But if you don't have adequate copper, you could you can have some issues with uh, stock strength. So those are some of the things that we'll we'll kind of discuss in our session. Okay. In terms of those deficiencies and looking for the different signs, at what stage of plant growth will farmers see these deficiencies, or does it vary based on what it is? It, it kind of varies, but you can start looking for them really fairly early. And then as the plant progresses, you know, once you get uh, a couple full leaves, it, it really becomes noticeable. But probably the thing that I think we're missing right now and uh, is that a lot of times we don't start testing till, let's say, on corn till about V10. Well, we'll think about when corn determines its maximum yield. We have the potential for 1,100 bushels of corn. Now, I don't know of anybody that's ever reached that because <laughs> environment and the nutrients just aren't there, but maybe we should be looking a little earlier because most of the corn determine its yield right around B6. So from about B, you know, even B2 to about uh, B6 or V8, we really ought to be looking at our corn to see how it's doing because that's when it's really determining a lot of its yield. That's when you got your biggest potential for yield loss. And if you wait till V10, by then you've already lost, you know, if, if you haven't addressed it, you probably have lost a lot. So I really think we probably need to be looking a little earlier. There's not a lot of literature on that, but this is an insight that I think we need to pay a little bit more attention to. And one of the big ones that I don't think I hardly hear anybody talking about is iron. We have quite a bit of iron in our soil. Unfortunately, it's just in the wrong form. Why is iron so important? Well, iron is used uh, by the plant to form an enzyme that makes chlorophyll. And you've got to have that chlorophyll molecule. The central element in chlorophyll is magnesium. And so if you don't have enough chlorophyll and, and in your plant, you're not going to maximize your photosynthesis. Right now, on average, we're probably only about 10 to 20% efficient at maximizing photosynthesis, okay? One of the big reasons for that is we just don't have enough carbon in the soil. So the most limiting element is carbon. But then after that, you start getting into some of these other micronutrients uh, that might be having a play in effect. 
and iron and calcium are probably two of the biggest ones that I think that we're, we're just not paying close enough attention to. So if, if you want to have a little fun, get some uh, iron, some reduced iron, and apply that to your grass. And, and you could write somebody's name like in the lawn, and that will show up for just about all summer. You'll be able to see exactly where you did that. We're starting to do a little research with iron, applying iron to tomato plants. And Dr. Rafiq Islam at Ohio State put on, he had a control. He used some uh, fulvic acid with some iron, and he got a 37% increase in yield on the tomatoes, just one element. And where he used nano iron, which is, very, very small, very reduced iron. They got an 87% increase in yield. So I think if we start looking at some of these micronutrients, uh, you'll start to see where you can get more uh, better yield. Now, it's not just one, you know, what they found is with the iron is they didn't have any more fruit, Uh, but they had bigger fruit and higher quality fruit. Well, as I look at that, I said, did you put on any calcium? And and calcium is so important. 80% of your calcium is taken up at pollination, and that determines uh, a, a lot of your a lot of your yield. So if you want more fruit, more more ears, more everything, you got to have adequate calcium in order to stimulate that. Calcium is also extremely important for germination and uh, also fruit quality. So it's it's real important that you have enough calcium uh, in the plant. So just a couple ideas, and then the big thing now is with Roundup. It's very common now that we have to apply foliar apply manganese to our soybeans because we've used so much Roundup. Roundup is a chelator and it's tying up a lot of these nutrients. We're getting what I would call adequate yields. Uh, you know, maybe even for most of us, they, they sound pretty good, but it may be possible that we can greatly increase our yields if we just don't chelate or tie up all these all these uh, elements. Or if, if we are going to use Roundup, maybe we just need to make sure that we have enough fertilizer out there at the right time. And a lot of times we can do this with some of the foliars if you get it small enough. It's got to be small enough, and you got to use the right products in order to, to get it into the plant. And that's a part of the what we'll talk about when we talk about some of the humates and what's so important there. A lot of times what's happening on these micronutrients, and this is kind of important to understand this, is we've got the elements in the soil. They're just either not in the right form or the, the plant roots can't get to them. So almost all the, the, the major micronutrients that we need that are cations, which have a positive charge on it. Usually it's a two-plus form, the oxidation form. If if you're looking at those, uh, what happens is they got to be reduced. And that's where some of the humates come in, is uh, especially fulvic acid can reduce those elements down into a form that the plant then can absorb. And, And what happens is a fulvic acid will encapsulate it, strip it, basically naked and move it right into the plant. The fulvic acid and everything moves into the plant and then it'll find a protein for that element to attach to and then that protein becomes an enzyme. 
And what's so important about enzymes is they increase our metabolic activity by 100, 1,000, 10,000, 100,000 times in a second, okay? So if you really want to increase yields, you got to have a lot of enzymes uh, in your plants. And uh, uh, unfortunately, we may be limiting how many enzymes and how much production we can get out of them simply because a lot of these elements are tied up. So here's the problem. Reducing conditions are anaerobic, and which means a lack of oxygen, and usually it's saturated. And I'll, I'll tell you what, for about a three-month time period when I was studying some of this a year or two ago, and I, that really confused me. You mean compacted soils? That's what we see under compacted soils. And I really was in a funk for about three months just trying to figure this out. And then I ran across a reference that just cleared it all up for us. Uh, Dr. Uh, William Jackson wrote a, wrote a great book. And uh, he said, you know, if you want to get reducing conditions, you first have to start with aerobic soils. And, and here's what he explained. He says, under aerobic conditions, the roots are going to form micro, you're going to have microaggregates and macroaggregates. And I remember from college that it's those microaggregates where you get those anaerobic conditions. And that's where these nutrients are going to be reduced, okay? Well, when you have a macroaggregate in the soil, the roots can get down there. There's air and there's water and they can grow. They can't grow into compacted soil. So what happens is these macroaggregates break open, reform, break open and reform. And when they do that, the roots can get in between the macroaggregates, and when they break open, those microaggregate sites can release some of these reduced elements to the plant. Plants don't grow in saturated soil. The roots don't grow, and they also cannot uh, access a lot of those elements. What happens is a lot of those elements actually leach out of the soil, or they're just not plant available. So that was one of those things that was an aha moment for me, realizing that you have to start with aerobic soils and then have the, the right biology in order to, to make these elements in a reduced form that the plant can, can use. So I think that's how we tie in the soil health to all this. This is all, it's all about biology. And uh, both the micronutrients and the, the humates are going to help our biology. What are some of the things that strip tillers should be doing to promote those aerobic soils that they want to then access the nutrients? So one of the things you can do is with a strip tiller, you know, you're only tilling just a small area, but it doesn't matter. Almost any type of tool that we use, a planter, we're going to get a little compaction right around that root zone, okay, uh, where, where it's at. But you got the rest of that area that you can manage to, as the roots grow out into it, hopefully we're going to get better access. So I think with strip tilling, if we can grow cover crops or anything you can do to form more um, macro aggregates in the soil, that's going to be beneficial. So uh, even though you're just strip tilling, you can strip till in with cover crops, and that can really help you. Uh, the other thing is we probably need to be looking a little bit more at the humates, okay? So when we're 
we're looking at organic matter. We have several different forms of organic matter. You've got the root exudates, and a lot of those are the non-humic compounds, okay? So those are just kind of the sugars and glues and things that are in the soil. But if I were to describe humates to you, it, it's almost, it's really, really hard. So, so I'm going to give you a little analogy. Imagine if you took like 100 different animals, uh, let's assume they're dead, and you took 1,000 different plants, and you kind of ground them all up together, and then you let them decompose in the soil, okay? And then after several you know, months, years, whatever, you try to describe what you have left. And, and it's almost impossible. We, we have almost 100,000 different organic compounds in the soil. Wow. And they're, they're almost non-distinguishable. But what we break them down into is fulvic acid, um, humic acid and human. Okay, so the fulvic acid are kind of the lightweight ones. They have a little more oxygen in them uh, and a little less carbon. Okay, and they're really important for moving a lot of the um, nutrients into the soil. They're the activators. Uh, fulvic acid is is really a, a great acid uh, activator. They also tend to be a little more acid. When you get to the humic, the humic acids are a little bigger, quite a bit more dense, and that's where a lot of our micronutrients and even our nitrogen and everything's kind of tied up in that. Usually the human's going to be kind of a brown to a dark brown. The fulvic acid's going to be kind of a yellow to a light brown, and then your humans, those are the ones that are really, really dense, and those are going to be black. One of the key things that for water quality is that we ought to be looking at trying to add a little more human, that fraction, in with our fertilizer, especially the negative charge nitrates and soluble reactive phosphorus, because the human has positive charges. Okay, it has what we call a high anionic exchange capacity, and it can tie up those negative charged uh, molecules for 60 to 90 days in, in, in the soil. Well, that's almost perfect for corn production because when we have pollination, that's when we really need to have a lot uh, higher demand for nitrogen and phosphorus, and it keeps it in the soil and not in our waterways. You can also use the fulvic and the humic acid, but it's only going to tie it up for about 10 to maybe 20 days. They just don't have, only about maybe 10 to 15% of the sites have this anionic exchange. Now, there is a caveat to all this, uh, of course. Why aren't we doing it? Unfortunately, the way human is manufactured is a lot of times we denature it, and uh, it, it just doesn't work as well as, as it should. If you can get the natural human, that is the most effective. So you got to really, really watch when you, when you go to buy some of these humates what you're getting. And, and they're probably not going to tell you those details. That's the problem. What can somebody do in that case? Well, I'm doing a little research into that. Hopefully, I'll have a little bit better, uh, more information for you as at a little bit later date here. But um, <clears throat> there are a couple companies that are selling the the natural human. 
uh, products, and that's that's what you want to make sure you try to get. Is uh, you just got to ask an awful lot of questions. But let's talk just a little bit about fulvic acid because fulvic acid I'm finding out is, is she, it's either a, a magician or uh, there's it, it, just so many things that fulvic acid does for us that that I think people should really understand. Uh, probably the biggest thing is it just really increases the total metabolic activity in the plant. Just It's just like it speeds it up a hundred to a thousand times. Okay, so if you've got adequate fulvic acid in your soils. It's soluble, it's a liquid, and it will increase plant growth by a, a factor of 100, okay? I don't know of any other product that can, can really do this, okay? But, but again, there's a caveat. Too much, it'll tie up those micronutrients, keep them tight. If you don't have enough, then you're not going to be able to get the nutrients. So it's all about balance. And unfortunately, it's also a water quality problem. Uh, a lot of these fulvic acids in the soil leach out of the soil and they get into our waterways. Well, what effect do you think that has on our harmful algae and, and the cyanobacteria? It, it increases their growth by a factor of 100, okay? So mm -hmm. we really want to keep these in the soil if at all possible. That's what we're, we're trying to do. But just some things that uh, fulvic acid does, uh, it really stimulates some of the growth hormones. It stimulates yield. It's a great one for kind of tying up some of the uh, uh, free radicals in the soil, things that can be harmful to the plant. Um, it's very good at stimulating your RNA and your DNA. So a lot of the, the plant genes are not activated until you get certain chemicals and certain enzymes into the plant, and then, then they're activated. So that's one of the things that uh, fulvic acid is very good at doing. Okay. It's also really good at buffering the soil. It buffers the pH. It helps to make some of the micronutrients more available by chemically weathering some of our, our um, uh, soil particles. It increases rooting and branching and shoot growth. You know, just all kinds of things like that. Uh, probably the biggest thing, though, uh, if there's one thing that just really impresses me about fulvic acid, it's its ability. It has a really high affinity for iron. It will move iron into the plant, which we know if we get adequate iron in the plant, it will increase the chlorophyll content, and it will turn your plants dark green. Okay? And that's when you know you've got really good. I think we, we, we're involved into thinking when we look at corn, uh, a lot of times it's a little bit of a light green and we think we're getting full photosynthesis. We're really not. Uh, you want it to be a dark, dark green. And when you see that, everybody knows when they see really healthy corn uh, how it looks. And that's, that's the look that we're, we're trying to get. And iron's a big part of that. We'll get back to the podcast in a moment, but I want to take time once again to thank our sponsor, Biotill Cover Crop Seed, for supporting today's episode. Biotill Cover Crops, a pioneer and leader in cover crop seed, represents a complete lineup of seeds suitable to a wide range of soil types and growing conditions. Biotill Cover Crop vendors are committed to your success and provide local resources, education, guidance, and tips and tricks to ensure your plantings have the correct foundations for success. The original producers of Bounty Annual Ryegrass, Biotill Cover Crops continues to add new and improved cover crop and forage varieties, including Enricher Radish, 
Bayou Kale, Shield Broadleaf Mustard, African Forage Cabbage, and Mihi Persian Clover. With over 30 years of experience in production, processing, packaging, and shipping, you won't be able to find a better fit for your farm anywhere else. Learn more at biotil.com. That's B-I-O-T-I-L-L.com. And now, back to the podcast. So for the folic acid, how do you um, ensure that it's staying in the soil and not running off? Probably you want to start with what the rates are, and, and it really depends on the products. I mean, there's hundreds, thousands of different fulvic acids, things that are considered fulvic acid. But when we're talking about fulvic acid, we're talking about a fairly small amount. We're, we're only looking at maybe a pint per acre. And in some cases, just ounces per acre. It, it's hard to believe, but we know that we have herbicides that we're putting on at very, very low rates, and uh, they're taking care of the weeds. So that's kind of what fulvic acid is. You only need just a little bit. Usually when you're looking at some of the other humates, you're looking at about a gallon per acre. That, now, this is a very, very rough, and it just depends on the product, but just to kind of put it in perspective of about how much you need. The other thing we need, though, is uh, along with the, the fulvic acid is the humic acid. The biggest thing that humic acid does is it changes the soil, it increases your water holding capacity, just really makes your soil uh, buffers it, just makes it a better place for the microbes. It supplies energy. But usually the humic acid works really well with the fulvic because it's kind of the storehouse, whereas the fulvic acid is, is kind of the mover and the activator and the, the, the element or compound that really gets it into the plant. Um, so that's how, how those two kind of work together. Now, there's, there's something we haven't talked about, and this is kind of a whole new topic that I'm also going to discuss just briefly, and it's the type of water we use. Now, we know that when we put on sprays, that usually when we make the, the water a little more acid, uh, elements are a little bit more available. But there's a really good book out called Cells, Gels, and the Engines of Life. It's by uh, Dr. Gerald Pollack. And uh, he talks about something called structured water, or another term for that is easy water and, uh, or energized water. So, so what is energized water? Well, in cells, uh, there's a, almost a fourth stage of water. There's about 60 anomalies. We just, uh, science really hasn't been able to understand until just recently. And this could be a fourth stage of water. So you have your gas, your liquid, and your solids, and this is a different form of a liquid water. So water dissolves nutrients and that that's kind of like if you think of a freight train these would be the carrier cars okay the cars that carry the nutrients but now you need an engine and the engine is this energized water it's water that's been split so that it has more hydrogen and hydroxide in it so a typical water molecule might have four hydrogens around it and it, it kind of acts almost like an electrical train, and it gives energy to the water to be able to pull it right into the plant. So imagine this. If you used energized water with fulvic acid plus 
some of the micronutrients, now you can greatly increase how many nutrients that you can move through that plant. And the plants and animals and humans are so much more healthier. We all have energized water in our body, okay? Just a, a side note here. Uh, something they, they, as an anomaly that, that they, they couldn't understand. When a person dies, their heart stops, yet the blood continues to flow for about five to ten minutes. How's that possible? Well, it's due to energized water. If, if your heart had to do all the work, think about how the blood goes through, you know, big vessels to small vessels, your capillaries, back to the heart. It would have to be a million times stronger than what it is today, okay? Oh. And the way it does this is through energized water. It's, it's got this positive-negative, positive-negative charges, and it moves the solutes, moves this freight train of nutrients that ordinary water is storing, moves it through your body. And that's, that's that internal energy that we have in, in that energized water. So we're using energized water with some of our micronutrients to get them into the plant. And if, if you do that, it's, it's quite effective. And it really reduces uh, the, uh, the amount that you need to use. Okay. How do you energize the water? Well, there's a couple different ways. Um, radiant energy, the, the red wavelengths will do it. Uh, for humans, walking on, on grass will do it. Saunas will do it. But how do, how do we energize it if we want to energize the water? Well, there's a, a company that's come up with a way. They found some minerals that what they do is moving water tends to have more oxygen in it and it tends to split the water molecule parts. So they take this water through some minerals. It's in a uh, kind of a specialized valve, and they, they make it flow through there very, very quickly. And when it does it, it splits the water molecule into uh, hydrogen and hydroxide. And that allows then that water to become energized. The good news is it'll stay energized for about six months to a year. So you can put it in a spray mixture and add nutrients. You can use it with herbicides. If you're going to use it with herbicides, though, be careful. Some of the guys with high Roundup now are using energized water, and instead of, let's say, putting on, say, 24 ounces of Roundup, now they have to reduce it down to about a one-third of that, about 11 ounces, 10 to 11 ounces. Otherwise, they'll burn the plant. So it so, absorbs so quickly and so fast by the plant that it kind of overtakes, you know, some of those, uh, you know, especially in our GMO corn and beans, it will overtake some of those uh, barriers to that Roundup that's, that's naturally uh, that we implanted into that plant. So you have to be careful. You, we're still figuring out how much we have to reduce it if you're going to use it with herbicides. I'm mainly using it with micronutrients is what we're trying to do. That's what we're doing. Okay. So you're buying this water that's been passed through that valve, not like the valve itself to do you, it? You can actually buy a unit. You can get one for like under your kitchen and uh, drink energized water. It's kind of slippery. Well, when you, when you drink it, a lot of people prefer it. 
Uh, I have a client of mine that his son likes a certain type of water, and he likes to play a little trick on him. He'll he'll give him two glasses, and one will be energized water, and one will be his favorite water that he buys from the store. Every single time, he'll pick the energized water. <laughs> it's got a it tastes better. It's got a little different taste, but it's better for for the body. Somebody that has kidney stones or something like that, it really helps to kind of flush your body of a lot of some of the things that we have uh, in, in our body. It helps take out some of the, the, the wrong forms of calcium, the calcium oxides and the, the iron oxides and that, that form. It's a healthy product, but the plants love it. A lot of greenhouses are now using energized water. You can buy a commercial outfit that will do it, and it, you know, depending on your size, probably the smallest it's going to be for commercial is about 14000 going on up on there. Some of these new things that we start, you know, one by itself will give you one, but you start adding another one, now you get some synergy, and now you start adding three of these. So you start adding the micronutrients with the humates, with the, the energized water, and all of a sudden now you're exponential, the increases uh, and improvements that you can see in plant health. So that's what we're trying to do. Yeah, it sounds like there's a ton of potential there. There is, and I think we're just on the the cusp, the very beginning of understanding. There's probably a tremendous amount of research that we need to look at. You know, I, I was in extension, uh, worked for Ohio State for 24 years. Foiler feeding was kind of a no-no. We, you just didn't do it. But let's move into the 21st century. We're not talking about massive amounts. We're talking very, very small amounts, and we're talking very, very reduced uh, elements, okay? Uh, almost naked elements that the plant needs. And when you think about it, it shouldn't surprise anybody that we can move some of these elements into the plant with foliar feeding because we do it with herbicides. And think about how big that herbicide molecule is. Just look up sometime what the Roundup molecule, how big of a molecule that is. And some of these elements that we're moving in are, are not near as big as what a Roundup is. So it is possible if you use the right combination of things, the energized water, some fulvic acid, the micronutrients, that we can move these elements into the plant. And I think we can have a, a big increase or a big improvement in yield and, and quality of, of the food that we're producing. The other side benefit of that is nutrient density, just increasing how many more nutrients we get into that seed can have a huge impact on human health, animal health, uh, anything that we're going to feed the, uh, these grains to. So I, I think it has a lot of potential. For sure. Yeah. What else should we mention about your workshop that you'll be doing at the Striptil Conference? I'll probably touch on a lot of different little topics that are kind of impacting things that we've just learned maybe within the last three, four years. Here's an interesting tidbit, and it has a direct impact on soil health. We now know that um, there's at least 16 different species of Pseudomonas bacteria that is in the atmosphere. Why is that important? Well, most of the rain actually comes from either dirt 
but even more so from the microbes that are in the atmosphere. What happens is the microbes attract the water and it'll freeze and then it will come down to earth and it'll either turn into rain or snow or sleet and that's how we get uh, rainfall. Well, they were looking at the 1930s and they said during that time period we destroyed a lot of our prairie areas, okay? We, we turned them under and they're estimating that the drought actually was expanded by several years because we didn't have enough microbes in the atmosphere. Well, what happens when you get all these, if you don't have a lot of microbes in the atmosphere for it to rain, you're going to get a tremendous concentration of water vapor. And then when it does come down, what happens? It comes down in three, four, five, seven, eleven 11-inch rains. Okay, so maybe a part of the reason that we're seeing increased rainfall in large events could be to the fact that we don't have enough microbes in the atmosphere. You've got to have live plants on that, that are giving off these microbes. They're on the leaves, and they go up into the atmosphere, and that has an impact on how much it rains. Think about the tropics. When you go into the tropical areas, just about every day from somewhere between 3.30 and let's say 4.30, I don't know the exact time, it rains about a quarter inch to a half inch each day. Why is that? Because as the sun comes up, we get evapotranspiration and it moves the microbes into the atmosphere. When they reach a certain concentration in the atmosphere, all the water, the vapor there is going to collect around those microbes and all of a sudden it just starts coming down as rain for maybe five or ten minutes and they get you know quarter inch maybe a half inch of rain almost every single day almost exactly at the same time okay so there's this natural cycle that i think we've maybe disrupted as human beings by not keeping our land covered with green plants as much as possible year-round and we know that has a big impact on on uh, soil health and uh, water quality and and all these things are really related i think to each other it's really interesting it sounds like there will be a lot of eye opening and a little tidbits people can pick up on i i think i i will talk a little bit about some of the applications uh, i'll kind of give you the broad overview but I'll be honest with you, there's a lot of products out there. You're going to have to go and just experiment. A lot of companies now are using microbes. They're, they're using microbes and biologicals. They're using the, the humates, and they're using the, uh, the micronutrients. The biggest problem with all this is there's really not – like a patent on anything. So the companies are very vague in the information that they give you. And that's what makes it difficult for a farmer. Sometimes I can read between the lines and get a pretty good idea of what they're doing, but even I struggle to know exactly what they are. If you go talk to the dealer, he says, well, I don't know. I'm just going by what they tell me. So then you go talk to the agronomist. He'll tell you, well, I don't know. And he'll send you somewhere up higher in the company. Unfortunately, 
they aren't going to tell you their trade secrets. You know, these is this is kind of a secret formulation because just about anybody could do it. Okay, if you if you if you knew what the formula was, you could make your own. And mm-hmm. so it's very difficult sometimes to evaluate some of this. You almost have to try some products, and when you find one that works really well, why then stick with it and uh, uh, try to figure it out. So it's a little bit like the wild wild west right now, unfortunately. <laughs> trying to figure out what works and what doesn't work. Outside of buying a bunch of different things and experimenting with it, is there anything that people should be looking for when they're trying to choose a biological product? You really need to have a control. Use, Go out and do some strips and do at least three strips. Four would be better. Do some with, some without, some with, some without, and kind of go across maybe a small field. And then with their yield monitors, just go back and, and to evaluate. You almost have to do the evaluation on your own farm uh, when you're trying these things out and uh, see, see what will work uh, best. I am starting to work with a company, and uh, we're, we're trying to get some things around that, takes care of some of the the, uh, problems that I talked about, especially with the humates and getting the right concentration. And and, uh, we're going to be doing some research uh, this summer, and uh, hopefully we'll we'll have some good results by fall that we can see see how some of these things are working. If, If you do it right, sometimes you can see really quick results. I mean, if you have a nutrient deficiency, I, I've done this on my own own farm a little bit with, with some tomatoes and in my own garden, just kind of experimenting a little bit. Uh, I can see changes sometimes within minutes to hours or, or, or a day. You can see a change in, in the, the plant health. So you know it's wow. working or it's not working. Mm-hmm. So it, it, it doesn't take a real long period of time to see some changes uh, with some of these things. Okay. And was there anything else you wanted to mention that we haven't talked about? If there's one good thing about COVID for me, uh, it really hurt my business. I lost probably 20, 30% of my business because I do a lot of teaching and we just didn't get to do very much teaching during that time period. But I did have some time to go back and I studied a lot on these micronutrients and on the humates. And my next big project's going to be on some of the microbi- uh, the mi- microbiology, trying to figure out, you know, what what bacteria, what what uh, fungus, you know, I I know quite a few of the species of the uh, uh, mycorrhizae fungus. I've already done some of that work, but just try to figure out what products are going to help us the best and do a little research into that. So that's my next goal, I guess. So. Yeah, a lot to research. Yeah, it, yeah, the amount of microbes we have is in the soil. There's billions and billions, could be a trillion, just in, you know, uh, a couple grams of soil. And when you take that across, you know, 2,000 pounds of soil in, in the top six inches, uh, that's where 96% of your microbes are in that top six inches of the soil, okay? So that's really the area that we need to be uh, concerned about. And uh, I... 
some of the things that just doesn't make sense to me, especially on water quality, is we've got the wrong people in charge. Unfortunately, we, we keep hiring engineers to solve a biological problem. And, you know, they talk like, well, we want to apply these nutrients and we want to put them deep in the soil. Well, that doesn't do any good because they're either going to leach out or you got to have them in the zone where the microbes are. So I, I don't think people understand the, the biological significance of these. And we can make a heck of a lot more head, headway on water quality and, and things like that if we actually put a few more microbiologists or biologists in charge of this problem. But uh, our suggestions aren't as highly touted as the, uh, the engineers for some reason. That's a pet peeve of mine. I've been oh, working yeah. on water quality for several years I worked with uh, NRCS and uh, they're very top heavy on engineers and uh, don't have enough of us soil health people or biologists to, to help solve these problems so mm -hmm. uh, this is just a side note but I'll give you an example <laughs> right now uh, uh, Kevin King has 32 paired watersheds. He may have 34 by now. So we're, he, he's an engineer. And they're taking continuous data. I mean, these are like each one of these costs anywhere from a quarter of a million to a half million dollars. Okay. He has one site that they just can't explain. Um, we've got a site where uh, there's a large dairy. And he's doing no-till and cover crops. The uh, phosphorus levels are fairly high, very high, actually, 150. And he's putting on about, let's say, 8,000 gallons of liquid dairy manure every year on these plots. The amount of phosphorus coming off of those fields is one of the lowest anywhere around. They can't figure that out. Okay, now you go across the across the ditch on the other side. This is a paired part. You got a conventional farmer who chisel plows every year, has 50 parts per million. Okay, one third the level that the other guy does has one of the highest phosphorus losses anywhere in Northwest Ohio. Wow. And I can tell you what's going on. It's, it's quite simple. The guy has good soil health. He has good macro aggregates. He has all, this, all these humates in the soil. He's got 90% of the carbon is tied up in your humates, your fulvic, your humic, and your um, uh, human, okay? And he just has really good macro aggregates, the water infiltrates, and as it goes down, he doesn't have compaction. It bays all the roots, and his cover crops just always look really, really great. They're growing like crazy. They're absorbing the nutrients, keeping them tied up. When the water gets down to where it finally reaches the tile, it's pretty much clear. There's not, there's not a, a lot of phosphorus in it. The other guy has compaction up the wazoo. Every time it rains, it just fills the ditch up with dirty brown water, which is phobic acid, uh, humic acid, probably some human in there also, some black, and he's losing all his organic matter. And he's got these compacted layers, so it's running off the surface, or if it does go down through the tile line, it's going straight without any treatment, 
and uh, there's no live roots there, so it all just goes out goes out the end. And uh, that's the problem we have, I think, in agriculture is we need to really minimize how much tillage we're doing. And and uh, and I think strip till is a great place because um, here's the thing with strip till: you're only tilling just a small area. And it helps that corn get off to a fast start uh, because it warms up the soil a little bit and it'll increase some microbes. And then you've got the rest of that zone, probably 80% of that zone is, is going to be, 75 to 80% of it's just going to be no-tilled. And uh, that's going to give you a really good soil structure. And if you add the cover crops in there, I think uh, that's a great place for getting more carbon into your soil is with all that root turnover. That's where no-till can be the, the way that guys can uh, improve their soil. Once they get that soil in shape, maybe at, at some point in time, they can actually convert over to full no-till. But right. I think it just it just helps us with that three to seven year lag at least um, uh, in getting our soils converted. That's that's what we see whenever we convert to no-till is it can take three to seven years for that soil to straighten itself out before it starts yielding back where it was. And I think the strip till is a great way for guys to kind of get over that. You know, nobody wants to take a, a yield hit. They can reduce their yield hit, especially with prices being what they are. Right. Yeah. So strip till is kind of the good in between there. Exactly. Thanks to Jim Horman of Horman Soil Health Services for sharing his wealth of knowledge with us today. Jim is hosting a two and a half hour workshop July 27th ahead of the 2022 National Strip Tillage Conference in Iowa City, Iowa. This limited capacity workshop requires an RSVP, so sign up today to save your seat. His classroom at a previous National No Tillage Conference drew 200 people and we're anticipating another packed session. To listen to more podcasts about no-till topics and strategies, please visit notillfarmer.com forward slash podcasts. Once again, we'd like to thank our sponsor, Biotill Cover Crop Seed, for helping to make this no-till podcast series possible. If you have any feedback on today's episode, please feel free to email me at jgerlock at lessetermedia.com or call me at 262-777-2404. If you haven't done so already, you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcasts to get an alert as soon as future episodes are released. You can also keep up on the latest no-till farming news by registering online for our no-till insider daily and weekly email updates and dryland no-tiller e-newsletter. And be sure to follow us on Twitter at no-till farmer with farmer spelled F-A-R-M-R and our no-till farmer Facebook page. For our entire staff here at no-till farmer, I'm Julia Gerlach. Thanks for tuning in.